Hey, welcome. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you a Bible. We are passing those out. We are using the ESV version. Uh, we changed and switched over to that for this book because it's a great word for word uh, uh, for us to go through. So we are in 2 Corinthians. Um, let me just share a couple of things that are happening, what's going on. We finally got these in. Uh, we have our little 2 Corinthians journals in the back. Uh, we would love for you to grab one, take some notes. Um, if you guys have ever journal, I don't know if you guys journal, but if you journal, there's something about going back and looking at your old journal, journals, reading your notes. Um, you can grab one in the back for like five bucks, and that just helps us cover the printing costs. But in reality, if you want one, just take one. Um, because we want to create a culture where people want to learn, want to grow, want to study. So in the, in the back outside here, grab one for the next several months. We'll be walking through 2 Corinthians. And we'd love for you to just take notes and walk through this with us. And so thankful for Taylor, who made an awesome little book and some details in that. So cool. Um, also, just as we're, you know, kind of turning here, some things going on, today is Baptism Sunday. Um, so excited. We actually have six people as of right now who signed up to get baptized. And we got to speak with them this week. And so excited for that. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. So excited for that. So we're Baptism Sunday, and we're actually actually going to meet just south of the Deerfield Beach Pier. Um, so normally we meet north of the pier, but we are going to meet south of the pier, right in front of the fire station. Uh, we'll have some tents out there on the sand, and we just want to meet there because there's more parking and it's a little bit easier to get to. So south of the pier, right in front of the fire station, 2.30 p.m. today. If you just want to come and support and encourage and cheer some people on, please do that. Um, there's nothing like baptism Sundays. And uh, again, for a lot of people, they just need other people. To, we all need other people to walk through life with and do and do just following Jesus with. So, uh, south of the pier, 2.30 p.m., we'll have tents, we'll have towels, we'll uh, talk about baptism for a few minutes and go to the water and baptize some people. Cannot wait uh, for this. All right, so we are in the book of 2 Corinthians. I know you guys are there or you've turned there. Uh, here's what's going on. Let me just kind of give you, again, some context, uh, because this is only our second week. So, context. Uh, this book, obviously, written by Paul to the church at Corinth, Corinth was a very strategic city. Paul spent time there very intentionally. Uh, this was a port city. This was a city where Jews were really fleeing from Rome, going to Corinth. We are told this in Acts 18. So the Jewish population is growing in Corinth. There's obviously a, a Greek and Roman culture there. Uh, they're in Corinth on their hill, on their Acropolis. You can see this. There's a temple dedicated to Aphrodite. And we talked about how this was just a really sinful city. Like this was just a really like people would go here to party. This was in a sense, maybe you could say, the Las Vegas of Greece in that time, or maybe even the South Florida of Greece. I mean, this is where a lot of money, wealth, uh, we talked about how prostitution was there like crazy. The temple priest would actually go into the town and sleep with men for money and bring it back to the temple. I mean, uh, the word Corinth became like a slang just for like basically you promiscuous person. If you were called a Corinthianizer, like you were a promiscuous person, um, there is like a bad connotation of being a Corinthianizer. And Paul spent a year and a half, 18 months in Corinth. And Paul planted this church in Corinth. And Paul loves this church. Now, I mentioned this, but just keep this in mind. Uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, what we're walking through, is most likely not even the second epistle Paul wrote. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, which he refers to another letter in there, so it's probably 2 Corinthians. And then 2 Corinthians, he's referring to another message he sent. So 2 Corinthians is either 3rd or 4th Corinthians. My point behind that, like, what is that? My point behind that is Paul loved this church. He wrote a lot to this church. We have 1st and 2 Corinthians, and these two letters are the majority of Paul's writing to any other church. Like, Paul wrote to this church more than any other church. His heart is heavy for this church. He loves this church. Even though this was a group of messy people, like, remember, we talked about this. 
in the church community, Paul has to call out a man sleeping with his stepmom. They're getting drunk off communion. They're arguing about baptism and, and different spiritual authorities and who's greater, who's worse. I mean, they were kind of like children gathered together, and Paul loves them deeply. He corrects them wholeheartedly. And really, this is a book where you see Paul's, First Corinthians is a book where you see Paul's correction. This is a book where you see Paul's comfort. So the book of 1 Corinthians is pretty heavy. He's correcting them nonstop. And now he's like, in 2 Corinthians, there's this heart of that father, like, let me just come along you and comfort you and encourage you. And if you're with us last week, last week, I mean, we read 10 different times this word comfort, that Paul's like, God comforts us so that we might comfort others. And Paul's saying, I'm approaching you in a different tone. In 2 in in Corinthians chapter 2, you'll see, I'm writing to you with tears in my eyes. Like, he's just basically saying, my heart breaks for you. I love you. I didn't want to come to you with a heavy hand this time, so I'm writing here to comfort you. And this is a book we pray that as we walk through it over the year, that God would just comfort us. God would speak to us. God would move in our church community. And, and that's, this is what Paul is doing in that way. Now, here's what's interesting about today. So Paul kind of moves from comfort to almost having to defend himself in our text. There was people going around saying, Paul, he's not a man of his word. He's not a man of character. There are people challenging his apostleship and his authority. They're saying, Paul said he would be here. He's not here. Instead, he's writing a letter to us. And so Paul has to, in a sense, defend himself. And so for the next chapter or two, we're going to be walking through kind of like some contextual things that were happening there, like some basically some church issues that were going on. And this might seem a little bit like, Josiah, what is Paul getting at here? Like there's a lot of, hey, I want to be there, but I'm not. And Paul kind of has sometimes those lengthier passages where he's basically writing to their context. But please don't miss this. Whenever Paul does this, he weaves in a lot of gospel truths. And we would never have these incredible gospel truths if it wasn't for Paul's weird itinerary and schedule. So as we read, you're like, what the heck did I just read? This is kind of confusing. We'll explain. I'll give you some more context. But don't miss on the gospel truths as we walk through this. So here's the title of today. It's Small Issues, Big Lessons. Small Issues, Big Lessons. The idea is there's so many small little issues Paul's addressing that we need the context for. But there's big gospel lessons here. And so often that, that's the way it is. There's small details or small lesson, and yet, or a small issue, and God's trying to teach us a big lesson in it. So as we read this, don't get lost. Try to like put yourself in the context, and let's focus on and find, I mean, these incredible gospel statements that Paul makes here about who we are, about who God is, about what God's done, about what God has given us. It's incredible, but you might miss it for all of the dialogue that's happening. So we're going to read this. Can we read this? 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We'll read verse 12, all right? First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read verse 12. Paul says, For our boasts, remember he just comforted them. He just was like, you know, hey, pray, I'm praying for you. Pray for me. Verse 12, Paul says, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity or holiness and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. Uh, some of you are like, I don't understand. It's okay. Uh, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. 
I love that Paul talks about him coming to them would be a second experience of grace. I wish my presence to most people was an experience of grace. It's probably not. Uh, but he's like, I wanted, you, I wanted to come so you could have experience of grace. Verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Uh, was I facilitating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus or, or Silas and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him, in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is to God, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This context, though very wordy, though very um, detail-oriented about what was happening between Paul and this church, he drops in some incredible truths that all the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen that he has sealed us, given us the Holy Spirit, anointed us. We want to walk through this. I want to understand the context because I hope it makes the truth of this, this promise, the truth of this verse, that much more clear. And I just pray that our hearts, our minds, just our lives as we say this could be just as worship, like we give ourselves over to this because I really believe if we can embrace, embrace that all of the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen, I believe this will be a life-changing and freeing truth. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we get to study it. God, I just ask that you would, um, just you would speak, that you would move. Lord, we just want to hear from you. We want to just understand what, what it is you want to say to us today. God, that your word is a book that's just filled with promises. And what does it mean that they're, they're yes and amen? What does it mean, Jesus? We just ask that you'd make it clear, you'd speak, you'd set us free, that your truth would set us free. We just ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so here in 2 Corinthians, I want to just kind of look at the, the overall theme of this passage, which Paul is addressing. There's some small issues happening, but there's some big lessons. All right, there's some small issues, but big lessons. And stay with me. This is usually kind of how life works. A, a lot of times in life, we have parenting or, or parents who kind of bring up some small issues, but when you look at it, there's some big lessons behind it. Like, th I think about this in parenting. How many times my parents give me advice, and I thought it was like no big deal, but it ended up being a big lesson? Or just even small things. I was telling Mike the other day, like, hey, don't run around by the pool. He's running by the pool and, like, falls in, right? Like, a small little, like, you know, comment, but, you know, it could be a big issue eventually. I think one of the worst days of my life, I was uh, dating Kimber at the time. We're at my house. And my parents used to always tell me a simple thing that you probably heard. I used to lean back in my chair and like, hey, don't lean back in your chair. Like, don't do that. I'm like, no big deal. I'm like, I'm an adult. I can lean back in my chair. So I like lean back in my chair. Like I heard this my whole life. And one night my wife or my girlfriend at the time, Kimber, we were with my mom and we're just talking. I'm leaning back in the chair. And as I'm leaning back, I fall all the way back into her bookshelf. Now this is like in the living room. I don't know if you guys have something like this, but my mom had like a bookshelf of just trinkets and glass and valuables, her wedding day stuff, little bells. I don't 
don't know. Just like everything priceless in her mind was right behind my chair. So I fall back into the bookshelf, and I just watch like layer after layer just collapse on each other. The glass is shattering. I mean, things are breaking. And in like one moment, I've never just felt so much guilt and shame. My mom looks at me. She's like, get out. And like we just run, right, right? We just like run out of the house. I remember going to the grocery store. We bought like a I'm sorry for your loss card. I don't know. We're just like, what do we do? It was one of the worst things. Honestly, it still haunts me. Like I haven't told that story for like 16 years. It just haunts me. But just the idea of like, it was a small issue, but it ended up being a big lesson. And I think there's so many more. My wife and I were like talking about this last night. There's just so many little things that our family has given us. Like, hey, this is, this is a small thing, but it taught us a big lesson if we, don't, if we didn't listen. Here's again why I bring this up. Paul's addressing some really small issues. They're like, what the heck? He's talking about his travel plans. I wanted to come to you, and I didn't come to you. I'm not, yet, I'm not facilitating. I wasn't wavering. Like, what is he addressing? What's going on here? But there's some really big gospel truths weaved into this, and I don't want to miss that. And I want us to like, kind of hear that and understand the context today. So as we talk about this, as we walk through verse 12 through 18, even in the beginning, don't get lost Let's see these small issues, but big lessons. So here's kind of how we're going to break down today. There's like three areas or sections that I want to look at in this way. And here's the idea. Number one is this. We're going to see uh, Paul's character. We're going to see promises confirmed. And we're going to see a paid contract. Paul's character, promises confirmed, and a paid contract. So let's just break this down. Paul's character. Paul finds it necessary to defend himself And so he reveals his character, and we can learn a lot from Paul's character and how to respond to people when they really accuse us or bring false narratives around us. So let's read. It's 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Let's read again. We're going to see Paul's character. What does Paul say? He says, verse 12, just so we get familiar. He says, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you on my way to Judea. Was I facilitating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Okay, what is going on? What's the context here? Paul finds it necessary as he starts off his letter to really address the issues around his name, to address the issues around his character, his integrity. Paul, and this is an interesting thing to me because a lot of times in scriptures we're not told to defend ourselves, but let God defend ourselves. And Paul does find it necessary at this point to say, let me just kind of remind you who I am to you. You know, I'm the guy that basically led you to faith. I'm like that father, your grandfather in the faith. I want you to know that I was not trying to say yes and no and, and kind of speak out of both sides of my mouth. Paul's trying to really show them his character and saying, look at who I am. You, you know me, guys. You know these rumors that are going on around me? They're not true. You know that people are trying to really thwart and hurt my position with you guys, my love for you guys. And so Paul basically has to defend his character to some extent here. Now, what's the context? The context is this. In 1 Corinthians, the first book he wrote, or second book possibly, but the first book that we have that he wrote to them, he says something in chapter 16, like his closing, ending travel plans. And in 1 Corinthians 16, he's like, I want to come to you. And they're, they're basically banking on his word. 
So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.5. We'll just put it up here. Paul says, uh, and you can even just turn a page over. It's one page over. Paul says, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. That was like northern Greece, is north of where they were. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I, I do not wish to see you now, for I do not wish to see you on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So a couple times Paul says, it may be that I will remain. I hope if the Lord permits. Paul uses this language in his first letter and says, hey guys, I'm going to be coming back to you and I hope I can either stay the winter with you or kind of come and go a couple of different times. And they're banking on this word. Obviously, 2 Corinthians is being written because Paul didn't get to do that. Actually, he had to go to them, in chapter 2 we'll see this, and go them to them for just a brief short amount of time to call them out on some sins they were giving themselves over to. And he's pretty heavy-handed. And Paul's like, you know, I don't want to do that again. So he's basically writing this letter to them. So basically, his plans changed. We all know this. Our plans can change. And there was a lack of grace that the church had for Paul. Now, here's what I want to point out in the midst of this. Paul says, this is our boast. Look at verse 12. This is our boast. He says what? He goes, it's our conscience. He's basically saying, listen, my conscience is clear in this. I wasn't trying to say yes and really mean no or no and then really mean yes. He was like, I believe I have a clear conscience in this case. His plans changed. Here's why I'm bringing all of this, this up. It's very important in ministry, we see this from Paul, is that our conscience matters. You know, Paul is basically saying, I'm not aware of any sins against you or against God. I'm behaving and care myself in a way where I have a clean conscience, a clear conscience. You know, I don't know if we ever talk about this idea of conscience. I think 23, that's 23 different times in the New Testament, Paul refers to his conscience. Now, it's interesting because we, we hear that word, I think, thrown out a lot around even just non-believers. I think of just like the Jiminy Cricket, like, always let your conscience be your guide. You're like, what the heck is that, right? And that's not what we're trying to say, but there is something about a conscience. The Bible kind of describes our conscience in this way. It's not like a lamp. It's, it's less of a lamp that gives us light, and it's more of a skylight that lets in light, meaning it's not that your, your conscience is infallible. Your conscience is sinless. Your conscience, your conscience is kind of like your, your moral compass. It can be completely off. But there are times we can silence our conscience. It's more of a skylight to like, kind of like let in light, like where you know maybe I'm going in the, in the wrong direction here. I think a great definition one author said about our conscience, he says, the conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God or even the moral law. Rather, it is a human faculty which judges upon human action by the light of the highest standard a person perceives. It's like a human faculty. It's something God has given everyone, Christian and non-Christian, they have some sort of conscience. Paul in Ephesians talks about how the world who does not believe in Jesus, who gave themselves over to sin, he says they've seared their conscience with a hot iron. Like it talks about when you walk according to the flesh, your conscience has been seared. Almost you silence it, you, you neglect it. I want you to consider your conscience. I want you to consider for a moment maybe what God has been speaking to you. Maybe what you've been, been maybe you've been ignoring it. Maybe there's a direction in your life you're heading in or there's something that you feel guilty for. It's, I almost just think of Lady Macbeth. If you remember, like, you know, Shakespeare's famous Macbeth, but it's been a while since I read it. I was trying to, like, study up on it. But remember when she, there's, like, this guilt she experiences for the killing of Duncan from her husband, and Lady Macbeth is trying to wash her hands. And if you remember, she, can't, she sees a blood spot, like, blood-stained hands. There's no blood on her hands, but she sees blood-stained hands. She's trying to wash them, and she's, like, she yells out, out, damn spot, right? And there's that fa- famous classic line where it's, like, her guilt her conscience was just haunting her. There's nothing there, but her conscience is eating her alive, basically, throughout this time. 
I think that we can experience this where our conscience kind of eats us alive. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, my, I'm boasting in this truth. I have a clean conscience. I'm boasting the fact that my conscience is clean before you. This really did matter to Paul. Paul says this a couple different times. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 24, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Like Paul's like, I go to extreme measures to have a, a good conscience before God and others. He actually says this in 2 Timothy uh, 1. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. It is so important as we do life that we do it with a, a pure or clean conscience. You know what it's like, and I know what it's like, to serve God when your conscience isn't clean. You know the feelings it gets. You feel like you lost power. You maybe feel like you lost your moral platform to evangelize, to share the truth. It's, it's crazy. We all know this. Paul's like, I went to great pains to have a clear conscience before God and other people. The reason why I want to bring this up again, as we're looking at this weird argument between Paul and the church, Paul's like, I'm going to boast in my conscience. My conscience is good before God and before man. I didn't, I didn't try to lie to you. I didn't try to change my plans. He even said again in 1 Corinthians 16, keep the context, he's, if the Lord permits, I'm going to do this. And they're so bitter. They're so mad. They're so frustrated. Paul, you're not a man of your word. People are going around hurting his name. They're creating a caricature out of Paul. They're, they're creating a narrative, a false narrative around him. And Paul's like, guys, my conscience is clean. Like, I'm sorry you, you're upset this way, but I can boast that my conscience is clean in this matter. You know, I think that we, there's some practical lessons here. One is we, I think we've got to have a little more grace on each other. It's sad that the church, you look at like just kind of holding Paul to this. Paul, Paul's like, I didn't say a promise. He goes, I, I said the Lord, if the Lord permits. My, my thing I, I think I want to take away from us in the church, first of all, is this. When it comes to Paul's character and our character, are we serving Jesus from a pure conscience? It's a very intimidating question for me. There's just things where even you look on your life and you go, God, I just want to, in this area, marriage, family, personal decisions, generosity, God, I just, I, there's so many areas in our life I think like the Lord's speaking into. And there's something about life when you kind of look on and go, Lord, I really do believe, like I fully believe, I'm not sinless here, but I fully believe that there's not any unconfessed sin between me and you, between me and others. I can serve you from this place of like, my conscience is pure, my conscience is clean. There's something incredibly empowering and freeing about this. Paul fought for this. I, I want to say this. You know, the world tries to silence that conscience side. It tries to, like, kind of boost our self-esteem and say, just ignore that. Ignore those voices that you hear that was built by the patriarchy, and we don't want to acknowledge those, you know, those morals that they gave us over time. And we try to find ways to kind of ignore our conscience that God has given us. And I believe that people generally have this idea of, like, when they know they're doing something, they know it's wrong. Like, but where is this coming from? You know, Paul, and if you're like, Josiah, where are you getting this? Is this biblical? Paul speaks into this in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says about the unbeliever's conscience. He says, Gentiles who do not have the law, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, uh, between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Paul's basically saying, hey, everyone has some sort of moral kind of law that God has written on, in them, on them, this conscious, this idea that, wow, I must be doing something that is wrong. It's either excusing or accusing them. Maybe you, they've convinced themselves that this sort of behavior attitude is not sinful, is not wrong. And Paul's basically saying you, you have to kind of like, God has given you that, and it's either accusing you or it's excusing you. Everyone has this to some degree, and we can't ignore this. And, and this is one of those things, like, I just really believe that God has given us a conscience, in a sense, as a warning sign. You know, it's interesting, and in, in, uh, I think it was uh, 1983, there's a f flight from Paris to Madrid, where a pilot has flown this flight, I think they said 25 to 30 times, very like, well-known flight, well-known story. 
But he's making the flight from Paris to Madrid, and he's doing everything he's supposed to be doing. But he, as he's flying, he has, I think it's called like the warning system, the GPWS, something. The warning system is saying, pull up, pull up. And as he's flying into Madrid, he's like, there's nothing, I don't need to pull up. There's nothing to pull up from. And he's recorded on that black box they found later. He's, he's recorded his last words were saying, shut up, gringo. And then it goes silent. And they find the black box, they find the recording of this. He was so confident in his skills, he was ignoring, ignoring the warning system, and it led to 181 deaths out of 192 people. And the reason I bring this up is that I think that that warning system, that saying pull up, pull up, is that, is that warning system for us. It's our conscience. It's where the Lord's like, pull up. Like, you know right now you're heading in a direction you shouldn't be direction, going in. And I think that I believe that God right now is maybe speaking to us, saying, hey, maybe there's some areas in your life you need to pull up. There's a warning sign going off. Paul's like, my conscience is clean. And I love how he then describes from there. He goes, you know, I've, you know I've done life with this uh, holiness and this sincerity, and he goes, and this simplicity. Look at verse 12. He says, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. This word simplicity simply means holiness, and he goes, and godly sincerity. So simplicity or holiness. It's interesting because they're accusing Paul, Paul, you're not really gifted. Like Paul, remember in 1 Corinthians, he goes, I didn't come with uh, persuasive words, but in demonstration and power of the Spirit. Paul, Paul was probably not the most charismatic or gifted man, but we know what Paul had? He had holiness. Let me say this. We might not all have the same gifting. That's okay. You might, there might be people, and there's just people who have greater gifting. There's people who have a lot greater gifting than I do, than you do. But here's the idea. We can all have holiness. There might be some giftings that separate us, but in reality, the Bible values this holiness. And Paul goes, you know, I came to you with this sincerity, with this holiness. And then he says, uh, in verse 12, he went on to say again, uh, with godly sincerity. And I love this idea of sincerity. Maybe you've heard this before, but this word sincerity is such a pure word. It literally means, uh, the sincerity means judged in the light of the sun. Like sincerity means, like you, you can hold me up to the sun and it'll expose my flaws. I'm judged in the light of the sun. It literally means without wax. Because potters in this day were known for taking broken pottery, kind of piecing them together, using wax, and they did a really good job. You couldn't tell if it was actually like pieced together by wax or not. It looked super legit. It looked super whole. But yet people who were smart buyers would take the pottery, hold it up to the sun, and the sun would expose those cracks, those flaws. And Paul's saying, I, I'm that. There's no, there's, no, there's no fake, you know, things I'm covering up here. There's no hidden flaws here. I want you to see them without wax. I want you to see there's, there's sincerity here in my lifestyle. Paul has to defend his character, and again, I just think it's a, it's a word for us. That I hope we can live in such a way where people say, no, I, I know that what I see is what I get. I know that what, when I see you, I, I see the real version of you, not a facade you're putting on. Paul's defending himself in this way. And it's crazy because verse 14 is so interesting to me. In verse 14, he's like, on the day of the Lord Jesus, I will boast of you and you will boast of me. I want you to hear this. You know, Paul has kind of some tension between him and this church. But he says, on the final day, on the day before we stand before Jesus, I'm going to boast of you and you're going to boast of me. You know, Jonathan Edwards was one of the most famous preachers, writers of all time. He actually got fired from his church over debate on communion. So he got let go from his church and on his farewell message, he spoke on this verse. And he goes, listen, when I stand before Jesus, I'm just going bo- to be boasting of you. And you're going to be boasting of me. He's basically, there's no blood, bad blood here. I think it's kind of crazy, right? Like he was let go for that, for a reason like that. But here's why I'm, I'm bringing this up. When you think about the arguments and tensions and the pettiness between Christians even, when you think about the, the bickering and fighting that happens, if we could just view this in light of eternity, 
If we could just view this in light of just standing with Jesus before Jesus. Imagine the person right now that you're in an argument with. Imagine the person that right now when you see them, you kind of cringe like, I don't want to see them. Imagine that person now with you in heaven worshiping Jesus. Like imagine you're side by side with your hands raised saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The point is, it doesn't really matter in light of eternity. Paul's like, you know what? I know on judgment day you're going to boast of me and I'm going to boast of you. I think that is a fantastic idea of just like, I, one, I take, I'm taking pride in you. Even though you're young and immature, there's pettiness here, I'm so proud of you, and you're going to be proud of me, even though you're frustrated now. Like, in light of eternity, that you're going to see this completely dramatically changed. I want to take hope in that. I, I want us to kind of see that we should approach division in light of eternity like Paul did in verse 14. I want us to realize that the arguments that we're in right now are not worth it. Some of the pettiness and brokenness over what? Like some of the, the broken relationships we have, over what? And I really believe God would be like, you, I made them in my image. I made you in my image. I love them. I love you. You're both believers in Jesus. You need to fight for this. You need to restore this. And this is what basically Paul is saying, hey, in light of eternity, we're not going to be remembering this. I'm just going to be boasting of you. You're going to be boasting of me. What a beautiful perspective. Paul's bringing up his character to say, uh, you guys know me. You guys know how I handled myself. You guys know how I walked. My yes was not a no. My no is not a yes. I wasn't intending to deceive you or trick you to think I was, you're going to spend a winter with you and then not. Paul has to remind them of all of this, and it leads us to our second point. Because Paul brings up this idea that, you know what, though? These promises I'm bringing up, it reminds me of God's promises. And God's promises are also yes and yes, yes and amen. And so we're going to look at number two. We're going to look at promises confirmed promises confirmed. Can we read verse 19? I feel like this is the heart of the text today. Verse 19, Paul says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silas and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. I want us to hear this. We have promises confirmed. He's kind of using the greater to the lesser argument. He's saying, listen, I've preached the gospel to you. Like, you know me, and you know that you know my character, and so you know that I wasn't trying to lie to you when I was about my travel plans. And he's like, I'm not going to defend myself anymore, and he just moves on to this idea, hey, all of the promises of God are not yes and no. They're yes and yes. They're yes and amen. They're like, what is this? What is this saying? What does this mean? What does this look like? Please stay with me, if you would. In the whole Old Testament, there's constantly this idea of if you do this, then I will do this. If you read the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's constantly filled with conditional promises. Conditional promises meaning, if you do this, then God says, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. If you obey me, then I will bless you. If you keep my commandments, I will be with you. And constantly throughout the Old Testament, there's these conditional promises that were based on our character. And they were not yes and amen. They were if and then. And this is so important. I want to actually throw a few verses up so you can hear this. In Leviticus 26, this chapter is filled with if and then statements and, and the positive and negative ways. Listen to this. Leviticus 26. I love this so much. God says, it makes sense. He says, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in its season. I will give peace in the land. I will look on you favorably or with grace and make you fruitful. I will walk among you and be your God. I want you to hear this. He goes, if you do my word, if you keep the law, if you keep the commandments, then I will bless you physically. 
You'll get rain in the land. I will be with you. I, I will walk with you. I'll be among you. If you do this, then I will be with you. And there's constantly these conditional promises, and it makes sense. I mean, we kind of live life this way, as parents live this life this way. Hey, if you do this, if you eat your dinner, then I'll give you dessert. Like, I do this all the time. And I love it with my son. It's so funny because, like, it's 5.30 o'clock. 5.30 o'clock. It's 5.30 p.m. And we're, like, eating dinner. And then, like, he just sits there for hours and hours. We put him in bed. It's, like, 8.30. And he, like, we're, like, can I have my dinner? We bring him his dinner in bed. He eats his dinner in bed. He's, like, so can I have dessert? I'm, like, are you kidding me? I'm like, you ate dinner at 8.30 in bed alone. Like, what are you talking about? Like, why would, like, yeah, but you said if I eat it. I'm like, oh, he's right. That little, he's like a little lawyer. And it's so funny to me, right? And, and this is kind of how we live life. It's on these conditional statements. If you do this, then I will do this. And this is how God really covenanted with the people of Israel. This is how God covenanted with man. It was a conditional promise. If you do this, then I will do this. Even in a negative way. Look what God says to Israel in this negative way. It's Leviticus 26. He goes on to say in verse 14, listen, here's the negative side. If you do not obey me, if you do not obey me and do not keep all these commandments, I will even appoint terror over you. I will set my face against you. I will break the pride of your power. I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So thankful we're not under this conditional covenant. Here's what I want to bring up in this. Hey, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. Hey, if you don't do these things, I'm going to be against you. I'm going to set my face against you. That's not someone, God's not someone you want his face against you. You know, seven more times judgment. Here's what I want you to see in this. There are so many conditional commandments, both pro, pro, positive, and negative. And it's basically based off their actions, based off their behavior. And here's the thing, church. I believe many of us, followers of Jesus, still kind of live in this conditional way. We kind of have this mindset. I think a lot of us still have this mentality that if I do this, then God will bless me. If I don't do this, God will curse me. Can I tell you, we are not under that covenant anymore. I believe that is why the, book, the author of the book of Hebrews says we're under a better covenant. Our covenant is not conditional. Our covenant is not based off our works. Our covenant is based off the work of Jesus. You see, and I love this because it's no longer about if and thens, but Paul says it's about yes and amens. And we need to hear this. He's saying it's fulfilled in Christ. Yes and amen. See, here's the point. Jesus kept all of the ifs, therefore I get the benefits of the thens. Jesus says, Jesus is the one who says, I kept the commandments. I walked with God. I did these things. So guess what? We now get the benefits of those conditions. Then God will be with us, yes. Then he'll set his face towards us, yes. You see, Paul puts it in this way, I try to write it out this way. Receiving the grace of God is no longer about if and thens, but it's about yes and amens. Meaning, again, receiving the grace of God or receiving the blessings of God. It's no longer on you about if and then then, but yes and amen. And thank you, Jesus, so much. This is the better covenant we have. All of the promises of God are in Christ. Yes and amen. Yes, Lord, and so be it. Amen, I agree. Yes, God. This is so good. It's off of us and it's placed on Jesus. Since he fulfilled those ifs, we now benefit with the thens. And it is, man, it is so free. And that's why Jesus says, come to me, all those who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's like, are you tired of keeping the law? Yeah, guess what? I fulfilled it for you. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus even talks about this. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, or Paul in Galatians 3.24. He literally says the law was our teacher to bring us to Christ. The whole point of the law is that we read these 613 commandments and go, 
oh my gosh, I cannot do this. I cannot keep this. This is overwhelming. And the whole Bible is saying, bingo, the point of the law is to reveal your sin and to show you cannot keep it and to show you're in desperate need. But there is a God who came to live among us and he kept these commandments on our behalf. And since Jesus fulfilled the ifs, we get the thens. And all the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen. Even that, think about all the promises of God. Can I tell you the greatest promise of God is Jesus, who fulfilled the promises of God. Like the greatest promise in the Old Testament is the promise of the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus has come. And all of them are found in the promise of Jesus. Yes and amen. Paul, again in Galatians 3.29, would go on to say, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds, and your heirs according to the promise. You are heirs according to the promise. If you are in Christ, man, you're grafted into Abraham's family. You're grafted into these promises of God, and your heirs according to the promise. I, I want us to see this because I think it can be hard maybe. I think sometimes, let's be honest, let's kind of talk maybe a little frankly. I think because of maybe the polarization that can happen in churches or denominations, Sometimes there's churches we might see on TVs that is, it's very, it, it's harder. Maybe we watch it and read it and maybe make false advertisement, false claims. Sometimes it can be like name it and claim it kind of blessings or teachings. And we go, oh, I don't like that sort of thing. And so then we go to the other extreme and the other opposite end. And I want to say like, Jesus, I believe, is inviting us into this. You know what? We got to still embrace the promises of God. Like there's something about the promises of God that are beautiful. Like don't forget and neglect the promises of God. Like I get that people can take verses out of context and abuse this and misuse this. But at the same time, there are some promises of God they're absolutely beautiful. They're absolutely incredible. And I'll say, hey, church, you know it? Say, thank you, Jesus. You fulfill this, and this is mine. Like, there's something about saying, Jesus, I accept this. I believe this. Yes. Amen. We try to fight the promises of God sometimes. That's what I'm getting at. Don't fight the promises of God. When you see that Jesus fulfilled all the ifs, you know, I'd say, Jesus, thank you for that. And I'm, I also want to receive now the thens. Thank you for what you've done for me. So here's the idea. Wait a second, Josiah. Is there really forgiveness of my sins? Yes and Amen. Does God give me a new identity in Christ? Yes and amen. Am I truly a new creation if I believe in Jesus? Yes and amen. Will I be in heaven with Jesus if I die and believe, and I believe in him? Yes and amen. The whole point is like, yes. Yes, everything's fulfilled in Christ. Yes, amen. Amen, so be it, Lord. Even the idea of amen, like, again, we've talked about this in Revelation. We went to the seven churches recently, and Jesus called himself the yes and amen. I'm the yes and the Amen. And we've talked about church. That's why in prayers, and it's so funny, I try to like tell myself, we, we do things without really knowing. When we pray, we're like, in Jesus' name, amen. And we're trying to say, like, it's not just like a weird tag we throw on a prayer. We're like, yes, amen, Lord. I agree with that prayer. I so believe it. I, I affirm that. I second that. I hear that. Jesus, you are the yes and the amen. And we, we don't just say these things. Like, the promises are in Jesus, yes and amen. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. He says, ask anything in my name. Ask anything in my name, and the Father will do it. Unbelievable. We fight the promises of God. I know my heart fights it. My heart says it's too good to be true. Because everything in life that we hear is too good to be true is usually too good to be true, except the gospel of Jesus. It's true. And I think God's trying to say, embrace these beautiful promises. Yes and amen. Thank you, Jesus. I'm forgiven because of what you've done, not because of what I do. Yes and amen. There's something so freeing about the gospel of Jesus, that all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Yes and amen. The whole point of the Old Testament is pointing to the promise of Jesus, and he fulfills all the other promises. He gives with Jesus comes everything else. If I have Jesus, I have everything else. I don't try to get the promises from God. I, try, I get Jesus, and I have everything else. It's unbelievable. They're all fulfilled in him. Yes and amen. Thank you, Jesus. Only he could do this. This is why our heart cries amen. This is why, not in a, in a shallow way, but we say amen during worship, during the teaching, during the word, during prayer time. We say amen because we're like, yes, Lord, I affirm that. I agree with that. I believe that your word says it. I, I, I believe into it. I give myself over to it. Yes and amen. This is, this is the promises that we have confirmed. There's so much more. 
I want to like, I wish we could get into and talk through this. I love how John Piper even, when he wrote about this section of scripture, he asked a question I want to ask. I thought it was super found. He says, have you said yes to all of God's, or have you said yes to all of God's yes to you? Have you said yes to all of God's yes to you? Meaning, God says, yes, you're accepted. Yes, you're loved. Yes, you're welcome into my family. Yes, you have everything in Christ. Yes. And he asked the question, have you said yes to all of God's yeses? You know, you think about it, so often I think we say to God more often, no, maybe, I might, I might do it, God, I might fall. No, I don't know about right now, maybe later. And God is saying yes to us, and so often we say no to God. And God says yes to us, and I say, say yes to him. If you've ever sensed Jesus pursuing you, Jesus' love for you, say yes to him. Say yes, amen, I receive this. Yes, God, I, I sense your love. Yes, amen. I'm not going to fight your love anymore. I'm not going to fight your grace anymore. I, I'm not going to try to think that for one second that your blessings and your grace are based off my obedience. Nope. That was if then. Now it's yes and amen. <laughs> I'm not going to try to pretend for a second, God, that if I act good enough, then you will love me. No. It's unbelievable what God said to Israel. Hey, if you do not obey me, then I'll sit my face again. I mean, you think about that and you go, oh, it's terrifying. I don't want to be in that. And, and Jesus, guess what? We're in Christ. He fulfilled those ifs. So I love it. When I'm hidden in Christ, it's like, no, I can't sit my face against you. My face was set against my son on the cross. And the cross has now given you this new position. You have a new position. Like you have a new, you have a new way in which God views you. God no longer sees you or me, Josiah Graves, the filthy sinner that I am, but he sees me in Christ, the new creation. And it's hard because I don't always feel like that. Maybe you don't always feel like that. But I tell you, but positionally, I am that. And I boast in the yes and amens. I boast in the finished work of the cross. Paul's like, I'm boasting, my conscience is clean. Obviously, we want our character and our belief and our lifestyle to match this truth. We want our practice to ma- match our position, but you need to know your position. You're in Christ. It's not if then, it's yes and amen. Amen, church? And then number three, you know what Paul goes on to say in verse 21? This is interesting. He goes, do you want to know how I know? Do you want to know how I know? He talks about the Holy Spirit, and he talks about all the promise of God are filled in Christ, yes and amen, and then he basically refers to it as like a paid in full contract. So we're looking at number three, a paid contract. Look at verse 21. He says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word guarantee is a down payment. And Paul is basically saying we have a paid contract. It's done. It's guaranteed. Now, there's four words we just have to focus on briefly. There's four kind of like actions God gives or does for us. He he establishes us. He anoints us. He seals us. He gives to us. So he uses these words to kind of communicate some incredibly uh, heavenly truths to our lifestyle. So stay with me. He establishes us. He establishes us. You know, it's really funny. I think about this. Like young adults, a lot of times you're like, I want to be established in my career. Like it, we don't want to be in a rocky place. Like, we want to be established, man. Like we don't want to be like, it's, there's so many unknowns and it's so weird. And I just love how in Christ we are established. He goes, you are established. The meaning is a business, uh, con- it's a business term just to mean a fulfilled contract. Like you are so, it's this fulfilled contract like that you have. It's so, it's so firm. It's so confident. It's established in Christ. You know, I want you to think about the idea that you've been placed, like Jeremiah talks about, like the Psalms talked about, we've been taken out of that unstable, miry clay and set upon a solid rock. We are established. We're on a rock that cannot be shaken, that cannot be moved. You are established in Christ. We fear so often different things about our life and eternity, and I really believe, again, the emphasis here, God who establishes us with you in Christ, you are established. There's something permanent about that. 
there's something com- comforting about that. He's saying, you want to know how the promises are confirmed? God has established you in Christ. This is where you are. And then he says, and you are anointed. He's anointed us. And I want to just pass over that because this would mean so much more, again, to people with a Jewish background or understanding or even a Greek background. But anointing or anointing oil or being anointed was used in a few different ways. Primarily in the Jewish context, it was used as a way to set apart or commission for a work. Meaning, if you anointed someone, I'm setting you apart for a commission for a great work. So back then, you would anoint prophets, you'd anoint priests, and you'd anoint anoint kings. And there's a fourth group you'd anoint, and I'll explain that in a second. But you would anoint prophets. Hey, God's like, I'm setting you apart, prophets, for the work I have for you. You're going to speak forth my word. I'm setting you apart. You are anointed to be in that. We are called to, to that, that prophetic ministry of preaching the gospel. God's anointed you and set you apart. A priest, the Bible in 1 Peter 2.9 says you're part of a royal priesthood. You've been set apart to be ministers of the things of God. We are called to go out and to be ministers to this broken world and community. The gospel has given us this ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the world to God. God has anointed you for that. And I think about this idea of just that not only has God sent us to be prophets, but to be priests, come alongside people, to love people, to help people, to support people, to be kings, the idea that you have a royal position in heaven, that you are royalty. That doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. What does God say about you? How does God view you? God's anointed you. The, the whole idea of anointing was used for a prophet, priest, and king. And then the fourth person it's used for was for a leper. If a leper were, were to ever get healed, they would anoint them. And I just love this idea that we're also lepers who've been healed. We're also those who are broken and, and flawed, filled, covered. But the Bible uses this reference of leprosy as a great example of just sin. And this idea that you know it, but you've been forgiven, you've been healed, and God anoints us. You'd anoint a leper who's been healed, and guess what? We're lepers who've been healed. And he says, you know what? You have that. You're established. You're anointed. And then he says, you're sealed. You are sealed. And obviously, this term was just kind of used to kind of just basically say um, it was identity, and it was also for security reasons. So if I were to send a package or a good or a letter or a note, I would usually seal it with some sort of signet ring or, or some sort of signature. You'd seal it. You'd take like wax and you'd stamp it and you'd stamp it on the letter. And usually there's a seal, there's a marker on that to say, oh, this is property of so-and-so. So if you've ever seen that, we have like a picture of this just so you can see it. But it's like, oh, wow, I can tell by the seal this was sent from king or royalty or some sort of leader. And they had some sort of signature. And God is saying, I've sealed you with my signature. Like you're sealed. God's like, my mark is on you. You're mine. It is for identity reasons and for security reasons. Also, do not open up. I love how the Bible says we are sealed till the day of redemption. It's almost like this letter is given. And it's like, hey, don't open till the day of redemption. You're sealed. Your identity is in Christ. He has his mark on you. But you know what? It's going to be fully opened on the day of redemption. That like right now we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a, we're, we're, God's, we're God's possessions. He, like, he owns us. We're his property. And he goes, you know what? And on the day of redemption, this will be opened. We'll fully experience this. You are sealed. I love this thought. I love the thought that God puts his mark on you and me. And then he says, and he's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So God establishes, God anoints, God seals, God gives, and he gives us the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee or down payment. Again, he's using this kind of terminology, like business terminology, which is interesting to me, to say, you, know, you want to know how it, it's secure, you're secure, you have a down payment, that is the Holy Spirit. So this down payment, if you ever give a down payment for something, like it's yours, but you're waiting for like that final day when there's no more payments, like the day of redemption, and he's saying, God's given you his spirit, you're God's. There's that down payment, but we're still waiting for that day of redemption. We're still waiting for it to be paid in full in some ways. And it's almost as if God's like, I'm giving you my spirit. And this is also, listen, there's more to come. There's more to come. I've placed my spirit in you and there's more to come. Down payment, guarantee. It's sure. 
You're mine. You're not going anywhere. We have this paid contract for on our behalf. The reason why I want to bring this up is, again, it's interesting. I can read this section. I had to reread this section a lot this week because when I'm reading it, I'm like, God, what, what is here? Like Paul's talking about travel plans, then he bursts out into your promises. I, I want us to see how God just weaves in incredible truths and sometimes into mundane moments, into those, those, non, those, non, those non-issues, we think. Like, I think God so often will speak to us in those moments that just seem mundane and like, what's this all about? And there's some big truths we've done. And again, church, I want us to like take this in. It's funny how we can read about Paul's travel plans or lack of travel plans and find some incredible gospel truths. I I want you to see, I want you to see that it's no longer us following Jesus, us walking with God, us receiving the grace of God is no longer based off the ifs and thens of what we do, but it's based off Jesus Christ, the yes and amen. And I want us to experience this guarantee that God is going to send. I've also given you my spirit as a guarantee. I also want you to know that you're mine, that you don't have to walk through life alone. I was reading something this week. Someone was asking this question online, like, how do I know if I'm God's? How do I know? How do I know if God, I'm God's and, and he's mine and I'm his? And just that verse in Romans 8 comes to my mind where he says, whoever's been adopted by the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. And just the idea that just like your Spirit just goes, yes, you're my Father, you're my God, you're my Lord. And the Spirit is that. It's that guarantee. It's that down payment. You're God's. Listen, we just want to close our time. We want to remember that. We want to sing. We want to celebrate. But I just want to also just commission you. Like you are sent, man. You are sealed. You are anointed. You are established. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And then why so often do we live as if we have none of those things? We can't live as if we have none of those things anymore. God has sent you, established you, redeemed you, anointed you. Live as if that's true. Amen? Let's just pray.